Thank you, Pastor. Please take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And as you're turning, let me say thank you for your church's gifts to the Co-Opter program. Every time you give to this church, a portion of that money, a portion that's decided by the church, makes its way to the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program. Many of you know that. What many of you might not know is that money first goes to your Alabama Baptist Convention. And then in the annual session each fall of the Alabama Baptist Convention, the messengers from the churches, like this one, vote on the budget for the state convention. And part of that is how much of the money stays in Alabama to plant churches, to do work on college campuses and so forth. How much of that money then goes on to what we'll call the central fund in Nashville of the cooperative program? In most state conventions, it's roughly 50-50. So then, in June of every year, and God willing, we'll do this in Anaheim, California next month, the messengers from all the churches who send messengers, like this one, will vote on the budget for the whole Southern Baptist Convention. Historically, 50% of the budget the Southern Baptist Convention goes to our um, uh, almost 4,000 missionaries at the International Mission Board. That budget is supplemented each Christmas by the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. 25% of the annual budget of the Southern Baptist Convention goes to our more than 5,000 home missionaries in all 50 states through the North American Mission Board. That Budget is supplemented each spring through the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And then about 20% of the budget of the Southern Baptist Convention goes to your six Southern Baptist seminaries, like the one I'm privileged to teach at on your behalf, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Did you know that one out of five seminary students in America, I mean, if you piled up all seminary students of all kinds, Catholic seminary students, 5,000 of them, all the Methodist seminary students, all seminary students of all kinds, one out of five is in one of your six Southern Baptist seminaries. And again, the oldest and largest of which I'm privileged to teach at on your behalf uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. And what that means is God can call someone from this church, as he often has, to ministry. And they don't have a lot of money. But they can get the best theological education in the world because there are about 45,000 churches like this one voluntarily giving to the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program. I've spoken at seminaries where the churches, uh, where, where the students there pay literally 10 times what the students at Southern Seminary pay. Now, the costs are pretty much the same. You know, the electricity costs pretty much the same at both places, and the salaries are roughly the same. But the difference is there are 45,000 churches like First Baptist Dothan helping to defray the costs for those students. All of which is to say, thank you for paying my salary. <laughs> and I know Dr. Moeller, my boss, the president of your seminary, Louisville, who will spend his, his 30th year as president next year, would want me to say thank you. And we are grateful for the support you provide for us so that we can train people God calls from this church to be pastors, worship leaders, biblical counselors, youth leaders, women's ministry directors, children's ministry directors, uh, missionaries of all kinds, 
Uh, we're able to do that for and by churches like this one. So thank you. And I'm honored to be here. It's the first time I've been in Dothan. I've preached in, I think, 48 states. I've been all over Alabama. I was in uh, 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 Gadsden, First Baptist Gadsden, about a year ago uh, this time. And that was the last time I was in the state. But I've never been to Dothan. So I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me um, this morning. There's a wonderful promise in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 where the Word of God says, there is, excuse me, uh, Romans 8, 31, where the promise is, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how do you know whether God is for you or not? For example, if you want to get married, nothing ever works out. Does that mean God is against you? Or what if you marry the person of your dreams? Does that mean God is for you? What if you are unable to have children? Does that mean God is against you? Or if you have all children you ever wanted, they all turn out well, does that mean God is for you? Or what if you can't get a job? Or you lose your job? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you have unprecedented success at your job? Does that mean God is for you? What if you're always having money trouble? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you win the Publishers Clearinghouse Sweepstakes? Does that mean God is for you? How do you know, in the final analysis, whether God is for you or not? Well, none of the things I've just mentioned here in and of themselves prove whether God is for you or against you. All of the good things I have mentioned here have happened to those God is dead set against. And all the bad things I've mentioned here have happened to those God is clearly for. So ultimately, how do you know whether God is for you or whether he is against you? Well, we know, first of all, whether God is for us because of what the Bible says God has done for us. It's because of the unchanging Word of God, not the changes in our circumstances, where we should look to determine if God is for us. Now, there are two verses, excuse me, two sentences in this one verse. That's my text today. The first sentence is, what then shall we say to these things? And you see Paul sort of scratch his beard here as he thinks about, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? Then the second sentence is, if God is for us, who is against us? And notice that little word, if, that begins the second sentence. Paul has just been thinking about these things. And he says, if God is for us, who is against us? So the last two words of the first sentence, these things. Paul's thinking about those, and he says, if God's for us, who is against us? Now that little word, if, illustrates why we teach Greek at the seminary. There are times when it really matters. The New Testament was first written in Greek. And let me show you what a difference this can make here. In the Greek language in which it was first written, there are several different words, all translated in English as the word if. 
And it's sort of like what I understand, you know, with Eskimos, that they have 16 different words for snow. There's one for dry, powdery snow. There's another totally different word for a heavy, wet snow. But in English, they all are just translated snow. It's the same with the word if. In English, we have to use context to demonstrate what they're trying to say there. And it looks, looks like this. Let's say a man says, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. And you understand, well, he might. He might not. It's going to depend on the circumstances. Another man will say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. He's going fishing tomorrow regardless of the circumstances. But they both said if. Well, it's that second sense it's used here where Paul says, if God is for us, who is against us? It could almost be translated as sense. There's no question. Sense God is for us, who can be against us? But Paul's certainty that God is for us is, is the result of him thinking about these things. Those two words that finish the first sentence in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? And Paul thinks about these things. And these things convince Paul and ought to convince believers in Christ here this morning that God is for us. Well then, what are these things? In one sense, it's the whole book of Romans up to this point. But in another sense, it's the things he's just been talking about in the previous paragraph. So... As that previous paragraph begins in verse 26, we know God is for us because he says that the Holy Spirit he gives to us helps us pray. We don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. Look at verse 26. <clears throat> Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, that's God the Father, <clears throat> who searches hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit dwelling within us, what, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You ever needed desperately to pray, but you didn't know what to pray? I mean, you don't know whether to pray this way or whether to pray that way. You don't know the future. You don't know everything. You don't know all the details. So it's impossible to know which way you ought to pray. But the Bible says here, when you don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays for us. In fact, there are times when you can't pray, right? Maybe your heart is so heavy, like lead in your chest. All you can do is just sort of cast yourself across the bed and cry out, oh, God. And that's about the best you can do. Or maybe you're so heavily sedated, medicated, you're in such pain. You literally cannot put two words together in prayer. You've never needed prayer more in your life, and you can't pray. You ever been there? Well, God is not in heaven wringing his hands saying, well, bless her heart. Bless his heart. If he can only utter something, I might help here. Come on, give me something to work with. Would you give me something here? But maybe you literally cannot pray. God is not wringing his hands, unable to help. No, no. Our God is so good, and he is so great 
And we're told here that his spirit prays for us in those times. And when all we can do is sort of groan Godwardly, maybe it's just, oh God, or maybe you, you don't even vocalize it, but internally you just groan Godwardly. It's as though the Holy Spirit encodes upon those Godward groans the very will of God, as it says. He intercedes for us according to the very will of God, as though he could pray any other way. And what percentage of the prayers of the Holy Spirit do you think are answered? I'm guessing it's pretty close to the percentage of the prayers of Jesus that are answered. Don't you? And Paul says, you know what? If God will do that, if God will pray for me, the Holy Spirit will pray for me when I can't pray, I don't know what to pray, but I desperately need prayer. God is for me. But that's not all. In the very famous next verse, that's one of the things that convinced Paul, ought to convince us that God is for us. The very famous verse 28, and we know. Now, if you know your Bible, you know it's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. You know what's about to follow. But Paul, have you ever noticed how it begins? And we know. How, how do we know this? We'll come back and look at that. And we know that for those who love God, not everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not for everybody, but for those who are called according to his purpose. The great promise of Scripture here is that everything that happens to in the life of a believer, God works it in his own omnipotent hands for our ultimate good and for his glory. Everything in the life of a Christian, even things that are evil, you say they're evil, you know they're evil, and God himself says, amen, you're right, that's pure evil, nothing good in that whatsoever. But our God is so great and so good, he can use things that are pure evil and in his almighty hands work a divine alchemy so that the final outcome is pure gold, both for our good and his ultimate glory. In and of itself, something may be pure evil, but God is not calling us in this passage to put on rose-colored glasses and try to look on the bright side of things. Some things don't have a bright side. He's not telling us to look at the silver lining in every cloud. Some clouds don't have silver linings. He affirms this pure evil. Our God is so good and so great, he can take things that are pure evil, work them together with other things for our ultimate good and for his glory. And Paul says, we know this. Well, how do we know this, Paul? <laughs> well, remember the previous verse? In the worst times in your life, when the worst things that have happened to you, when you don't know what to pray, you can't pray, that's especially when the Holy Spirit's praying for you. His prayers are always answered. That's how we know this verse is true. And when do we cling to Romans 8, 28? When is this especially precious to us? And by the way, it's been my observation that, that Christians seem to be backing away more and more from using Romans 8, 28 rightfully. <clears throat> I think I know how it's happened. I think we've all seen Romans 8, 28 thrown out to people who are in deep pain, glibly, 
I'll remember all things work together for good. And we've seen that and know that's wrong. And as a result, we completely back away from using this precious promise. Now, true, there's a time not to use Romans 8, 28. When people are on the raw edge of pain, and they're angry at God, and they don't understand, and they're just almost enraged at God, that's not when you say, well, all things work together for good. No, it's when people have settled down a little bit, their hearts are broken and crushed, and they're sincerely wondering, how could God let this happen? Why, why would God let this happen? That's when Romans 8, 28 is a precious, precious promise. We don't want to lose the importance of Romans 8, 28. It means way too much. But it's a promise that all things in God's hands work together. In and of themselves are evil, but God can work them together with other things so that all things are for our ultimate good and for his glory. Have you ever seen the Old Testament version of Romans 8, 28? It's Psalm 119, 91. For all things, he says, are your servants. All things, even the devil. Martin Luther said, yes, he's the devil, but he's God's devil. He's on God's chain. All things, even the very worst things that have happened to you, Someday, if you're in Christ in heaven, you will bless God for the worst things that have ever happened to you in this world. Only a Christian can say that. And only a Christian can say that sometimes through clenched teeth. And only a Christian can say that sometimes through tears. Because once again, as we talked about in the previous hour, you can only say that by faith with some things. Because if we had the time and the transparency to hear from everyone this morning what's the worst thing that ever happened to you, I'm sure there are many people who would say things for which somebody probably should have been put in prison for. Or worse. But the Bible promises that the time will come if you're in Christ. Not only will the memory of that be erased and the pain will stop, and it can't hurt you anymore. No, no, it's not just that the memory is neutralized. In heaven, you will bless God forever and ever that he allowed the worst thing that's ever happened in your life. That's the greatness of this promise. We have a God so great, he can cause that thing, the worst thing that's ever happened to you, to work together with other things that you will bless God forever. Again, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you? Well, I've lived long enough now to have a lot of bad things happen to me. I mean, just what, five months ago today, I was in the hospital. Some other things. I, you know, I had a blockage. I'd lost about 25 pounds, hadn't eaten or slept in a couple of weeks. And so they were going to give me this nutritional stuff, liquid stuff in the bag. They had their hands on the bag. And I said, I, I can't feel my arm. And I reached over, I couldn't feel that. Lifted it up, flop, it flops back down. So they immediately went into stroke protocol. They ran me down the hall, and they're running all these scans on me and so forth. And they discovered that the pick line in which they'd put in last night, that they were going to put this material in, had inadvertently been inserted into my aorta. Had they turned this stuff on, and folks, their hands were on the bag. They were seconds from turning this stuff on. It, it would have killed me. That's where we'll be in eternity. The worst things that ever happened to us, someday we will bless God 
for those things in eternity. Now, that was pretty short term. Some of the things you've endured, you've been enduring for your whole life as a result maybe of what someone else has done to you or some other medical thing like that. But God promises that he will not just erase the memory someday, but you will praise God forever. And it's just the opposite for unbelievers. All things work together for evil for those who do not love God, who are not called according to his purposes. And the very best things that have ever happened to unbelievers, they will curse forever that they happen because they will be punished forever for not thanking God for the best things that ever happened to them in this world. They will be punished forever for not using them for his good, for, for God's glory. And for all eternity, they will curse the best blessings they ever got in this life. And they will wish they had never received the best things they ever got. But the Christian, our God is so good and so great. He is able to take the worst things that have ever happened to you and bless you forever through them. And I want you to remember who wrote this verse. This is a man who would write in 2 Corinthians 12 and in another place of the things he had been through. He said, I have been 195 times I, I received the whip of the Jews across my back. How many times have you been whipped for the sake of the gospel? 195 times. Three times he said he had been beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, and they, they quit because they thought he was dead. How many times have you been stoned for the sake of the gospel? A night and a day he said, I've been adrift at sea. Three times I've shipwrecked, often in, without food, cold exposure, many sleepless nights, often in danger from, from robbers on his travels, in danger in the cities, in danger in the country. This is a man who could look at us and say, I have suffered more than any of you. But this is also a man who received a blessing beyond any of us. He tells about it there in 2 Corinthians, I think, 11 or 12, how he got to go to heaven. God enabled him. He said, whether in the spirit, I don't know, but he was enabled to go to heaven and to see and to hear things there. Unfortunately, he didn't, you know, he'd say, I didn't get a book or a movie deal out of it like people in your day supposedly do. But the greatest of all earthly blessings, I mean, what could be greater than that? Someone could say, I'm the richest man in the world now. Paul could just wait. Say, well, that's nothing. Someone say, I'm the most powerful person in the world. Paul could say, that's nothing. You know, no matter what anybody said, he could say, I've been to heaven. Top that. So he suffered more than any of us, but he's seen what we have not seen. He sees how things all turn out. He sees how they end up. He hears the things that are in heaven. He knows about all those things. And this is the man who says in this very chapter, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. 
So you get that? The man who wrote Romans 8, 31, worst things that have ever happened to you, you will bless God forever. You can say, well, you, Paul, you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what's, what I've been through. He could say, you don't know what I've been through. I've suffered far more than you, far more than you, but I've seen what you haven't seen. And I'm telling you that all the sufferings I've been through, they don't even compare to the glory that's to be revealed to us. You have to take that by faith, he would say. I have seen it with these eyes. I have seen it, and I'm telling you, there is no comparison for me to try to explain to you the difference between the sufferings of this time, the glories of that time. It's like, it's like comparing algebra, like explaining algebra to an ant. You don't have the capacity. I could tell you about it. You have no capacity to understand the difference in the glory. It's so far beyond our ability. I mean, even the, most vi the least valuable thing in heaven what our feet walk on is transparent gold. There's nothing like that in this world. The, the least valuable thing in heaven would be the most valuable thing in the earth. And therefore, if I would tell you about the great stuff in heaven, you, you, you couldn't understand it no, any more than an ant can understand algebra. You don't have the ability. You don't have the capacity. No human does. And Paul says, you know what? What do, what do I say to that? What do I say to that? If God will take the worst things that have ever happened to me, and he doesn't just promise to neutralize the memory someday and the pain is gone, but to bless me so much, I will praise God forever and ever for the worst things that have ever happened to me. If he will do that, God is for me. But that's not all. Right after that in Romans 8, verses 29 to 31, is what's often referred to as Paul's golden chain, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus would be the first of many made like him. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called... He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you are in Christ, it says here that God foreknew you. In eternity past, he foreknew you. And that doesn't just mean that he knew everything about you, although that's true. The word is a more intimate word than that. We could almost translate it as he foreloved you. Yes, he knew everything about you. But not just your eye color and when you'd be born and things like that. He knew every sin you would ever commit before you committed it. He knows every sin you will commit that you haven't yet committed. And he loved you anyway. He foreknew you. He foreloved you. And these are the ones that says he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. All those in Christ have been predestined to be like Jesus Christ, not like him in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods, as the Mormons believe. Rather, we will be like him in his sinless, perfect humanity, reflecting the glory of God from every cell and pore of our bodies. And these whom he predestined, it says, these he also called. He called you with a call that awakens the dead. 
When you were his enemy, when you were dead in trespasses and sins, he called you like he called Lazarus. When Lazarus, who was dead in the tomb in John chapter 11, he said, Lazarus, come forth. If he hadn't said Lazarus, they all would have come forth. But he called you. When you didn't deserve it, when you were his enemy, you weren't looking for him like me on that Thursday night when I was nine years old. I'd been taken to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, nine months before I was born. And I'd heard the gospel hundreds of times, but on this Thursday night during this week-long series of meetings, he called me through the gospel. I heard him calling me as he hadn't called me before. I heard him calling me in a way he didn't call the boys on my left and the boys on the right that night. He called me unmistakably like Lazarus. And I didn't deserve it. But he called me through the gospel. And all in Christ, he calls in that same sort of way. Again, through the gospel, whenever he calls, whenever the gospel goes forth, all are sincerely called to respond, and all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. But this is what the Bible refer to, refers to as his special call. You know he's calling you, and it's unmistakable. And he has no obligation to do that. And he doesn't need you on the team, but by his grace, he calls you through the gospel. And these whom he called, it says, these he also justified. Now, justified means more than just as if you'd never sinned. You realize if you'd never sinned in your life, you still couldn't go to heaven. Because it takes more to go to heaven than no sin. That's just neutral. It takes more to go to heaven than no sin. But what do we have? We have infinite sin. The guy did my PhD on Jonathan Edwards man called by the Encyclopedia Britannica, the greatest mind America ever produced. He was pastor of a church, preached the most famous sermon in American history, led his church in part of New England through the greatest spiritual awakening our country has ever known. He famously said one time, my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. Well, how can that be? My sins are infinite because I don't go one second without sin. Uh, be careful. That, that's how a false teaching can begin. Someone can say to you, can you go one second without sin? And you think, well, I, I guess I could go one second. That sounds pretty reasonable. Well, if you can go one second, you can go two, can't you? If you can go two, can't you go ten? Can't you go then a minute? And that ultimately leads to the idea of sinless perfection, that there can come a point in your life you can stop sinning. But the point, the presumption is that we can go one second without sin, and folks, we can't. We're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? When do we ever do that? Never. We never do anything perfectly, purely, or without sin. Someone put it this way. If sin were blue, everything in your life, everything you said, everything you did, every motive that you have would be some shade of blue. Some would be a dark navy blue. Some would be a light blue. But every word, every deed, every motive, every thought would be some shade of blue. Because every part of us was, is affected by sin. It's tainted. Someone put it this way. In fact, it was an inspired writer. What does the Bible say this? That 
Even our righteousnesses are as what? As filthy rags. I mean, we know our sins are filthy rags, but the Bible says our righteousnesses, individual acts of righteous, righteousness, all of our righteousness we ever do is filthy rags. In those times when you say this is righteousness and this is unrighteousness and I choose righteousness, good. That's what you ought to do. And when some sense God is pleased, when you say this is obedience to God and I'm tempted with disobedience to God, which is it going to be? I, I, I choose obedience. Good. That's what you ought to choose. In some sense, God is pleased. But the Bible says that even in our righteousnesses, those are as filthy rags in comparison to a holy God. Why? Because they're not, they're not perfectly pure. There's more influence of sin there than we're even aware of. That's why Edwards would say, my sins are infinite. I, as Calvin put it, I'm, my heart is a sin factory. I never do anything, say anything, think anything. Even the best things, when the most self-sacrificing moments, when you get up in the middle of a night to care for a child, when you stop on the side of the road to help some stranger, even in our most self-sacrificial moments, there's some selfishness in there, isn't it? Even if for a brief moment you might think, well, I hope someone sees me do this, or I hope my spouse appreciates this, or it may be nothing more than, well, I, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do it. There's some selfishness, there's some sin, even in our very best deeds, even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We never go one second without sin. Our sins are infinite, but Edward said, my sins are infinite upon infinite. How can that be? That's because every sin, and we sin every moment, every sin is also a double sin. What is the greatest of all commandments? Love God, how much? With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And every moment you're sinning, and when is that? Every moment. You are not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, are you? Which is the greatest of all commandments. So every single moment of our lives, not only are we sinning against God, we are breaking the greatest of all commandments. So our sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. I want you to imagine that this podium here is the center point of a line that extends infinitely in this direction, minus one, minus two, minus three to infinity, and positive one, positive two, positive three to infinity here. Well, we have a problem with sin where our sins are infinite upon infinite and multiply by infinite. And even when we try to do something about it, we, we try to make up for some of them. We do so with bloody hands. Someone said even our repentance needs to be repented of. Even our tears need to be washed. Our sins are infinite upon infinite. But what if you had never sinned in your life? That just brings you back to zero, to neutral. You can't go to heaven with neutral. <laughs> if you'd never sinned in your life, that's not good enough. Because the Bible says we must have perfect righteousness. Jesus said, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. <laughs> well, who can do that? We must have perfect righteousness. Who's done that? Well, there was a man. A man who came from heaven. 
a man who lived 33 years of perfect righteousness. He always did what God wanted. He never did what God forbids. Every moment of his life, he loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, his neighbors himself, and never once in 33 years, despite the constant false accusation and charges of, of the Pharisees and others, despite all the spiritual onslaughts and temptations of the devil, not in all of his frustrations, in a sense, with, with the inability of people, even his own disciples, to get his teaching. And despite the ni entire nights he would spend in prayer and the entire days of people constantly pressing on him, constantly pressing for healing, not ever once in the midst of all that, he'd just kind of lose it for a second, but then get under control again. Not for one second did he ever sin. And Jesus earned heaven. He earned it. The only one ever. And on the cross, he became a willing substitute for lawbreakers like us. His righteous life qualified him to be a substitute for lawbreakers like us. So then on the cross, that great exchange took place. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we, the infinite sinners, might become zero, neutral. No, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we believe into Christ, and that's really what the word believe means. It means to believe into, to faith into. We don't just believe that Jesus existed or believe certain facts. We believe into Christ. You've heard of being united with Christ by faith, right? When we believe into Christ, God looks upon you as though you had lived the life of Jesus. You get credit for the whole life of Jesus. God looks upon you as though you spoke all those words that Jesus spoke. God looks upon you as though you had the perfectly pure heart of Christ. God looks upon you as though you did all of this healing and teaching and so forth. And on the cross, God looks upon Jesus as though he lived my life. And you know what my life got, the perfectly pure son of God? The atomic bomb of the wrath of God. That's what justified means. Not just that our sins are forgiven. Not just as if we had never sinned. Justified means to be declared as righteous as Christ. To be given credit for the life of Christ. And folks, that's not all. It gets even better than that. For these whom he justified, these he also glorified. Made like Christ forever and ever. And notice in your Bible, it, it's past tense. It's called a perfect tense in Greek. It's as though it's done in the mind of God. It's still future in our experience. But it's done in the mind of God. And so the Apostle Paul goes, what shall we say to these things? What things, Paul? Paul. Well, he gives you the Holy Spirit who prays for you when you don't know what to pray, 
When you can't pray, he prays for you. He prays the very will of God. His prayers are always answered. And then he takes everything that ever happens to you, even the worst things that ever happened to you, and it doesn't just neutralize them. So you live with the hope that someday the memory is gone. It won't hurt me anymore. No, he will bless you forever and ever for the worst things that have ever happened to you. And then, before the foundation of the world, knowing everything about you, knowing every sin you would ever commit, he loved you anyway and predestined you to be like Jesus and then called you when you had no interest in him, when you were spiritually dead, he called you and gave you credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus and ensures that you will be like Christ forever and ever. What should we say to these things? We could say a lot. Paul says, if God is willing to do that, God is for me. Well then, if that's true, and it is, I got a question for you, Paul. Why is my life so stinking hard? If God is for me like that, why is my life so stinking hard? Oh, that sounds great. In a beautiful old worship center like this on a Sunday morning. But I got to go home after church. And you know, life is hard at home. I've got to go to work tomorrow. Life is hard at work. If God is for me like this, why is my life so hard? Well, even though God is for us, we do have forces against us. Just because God is for us doesn't mean there are no forces against us. The Bible says the whole world is against us. You ever notice that? Just about everything you are for as a Christian, the world is against it's like being a Christian is swimming against the current all the time, and the current against us is getting stronger and stronger, it seems, every time you turn on the news. The world is against you. The Bible says the flesh is against you. Even though we are justified, made right with God, declared righteous, given credit for the life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells us, we are still in this body, and in this body there is something we call, the Bible calls it the flesh. Flesh isn't like the, the, the flesh on our bones is evil. Rather, the flesh, the biblical term, the flesh, it describes that part of us that still finds sin appealing and temptation attractive. As long as we're on this side of eternity, every true Christian will sometimes find sin appealing and temptation attractive. And so Paul describes it, it's like a war within us. Christians have the Holy Spirit within them that desires the will of God, wants the holiness of God more than anything else. But those very same people who choose righteousness also will turn around and choose unrighteousness and then hate themselves for doing it. And it's like a war constantly going on between the flesh and the spirit. Why do I do what I don't want to do? But yet when I do it, I want to do it. And that struggle makes it hard makes life hard. Sometimes our, our choices, according to the flesh, leave scars on our bodies and scars on our relationships. And even though we want the things of God more than anything, so we want to see God's face more than we want anything, we'll still turn around and do things. And God 
disciplines those whom he loves, and all of that leads to life being harder. The world is against us. The flesh is against us. The Bible says the devil is against us. And that makes life hard. But what Paul is saying here, if God is for us, who is against us? He doesn't mean no one is against us. The late James Montgomery Boyce said it was like Paul has an old-fashioned set of scales here. And on one side, he's putting peanuts. Okay? You got anyone against, us, against you? Well, I sure do, Paul. Well, who's against you? Well, the whole world is against me, Paul. Okay, put that peanut over here. Plunk. Anything else? Well, yeah, this sin factory that beats in my chest works against me all the time. All right, put that peanut over there. Plunk. Anything else? Well, the devil is sure against me, Paul. He, was against, he made life harder for Job. He makes life harder for me. Okay, put that over there. Plunk. Anything else? Well, I, I think my boss is against me. I think my teachers are against me. Okay, put that over. Plunk. And then it's as though Paul throws the anvil of God on the other side. Boom! If God is for us, who is against us? Yes, you have forces against us. The world, the flesh, the devil. But if God is for us, who are they? So ultimately what he's saying is that when God is for you, There is nothing, there is no one who can thwart God's eternal plan for you. Your place in heaven is secure if you are in him. Some people believe you can lose your salvation. Well, if you could, you would. In fact, you would have done, lost it long ago. Your place in heaven is secure because he did the work and nothing can thwart his eternal plan for us. He permits suffering, but he has decreed glory. So there's nothing or no one can stop his eternal plan. If you are a Christian no one, false teachers from the past who perhaps decree today that you have lost your salvation, those false teachers can't cause you to lose your salvation. If you left some religious group that now condemns you, there is no religious group, no religious official who can decree that you lose your salvation and neither unbelieving parents nor an unbelieving spouse nor an unbelieving boss nor any other unbeliever can so tempt you or can so confine you or restrict you from following Christ as your heart wants to do that he would ever reject you. And when it says, who can be against us, my friend, that who includes you. The who includes you. You did not earn your way into salvation. You cannot send your way out. Now, let me hasten to add, if anyone hears that and thinks, that means once I profess faith in Christ, I can live any way I want and go to heaven, is a, that person is a stranger to grace in the first place. The one I'm referring to, attempting to do so pastorally, is the one who hears the preaching of the Word of God, and they want heaven more than anything. They want salvation more than anything, but they are terrified because of some sin they cannot conquer, but they want to conquer. 
or some particularly grievous sin they have committed, because of that, at the final day, God will slam the door of heaven against them. And they're terrified. That's the one to whom I'm speaking when I say, my brother, my sister, it wasn't your goodness that got you in. Your sin will not cast you out. You want Christ. You know why you want Christ? That's the greatest proof, perhaps, that he wants you. If you want Christ, that's one of the greatest signs. You can be sure he wants you. You would not want Christ if it were not for the work of his Holy Spirit within you already. You would be his enemy. You would be unconcerned. You wouldn't care. You would have no interest in these things if he weren't already seeking you. If you want him, even though you're afraid he will not have you, if you want him, that's one of the best evidences that he does want you. If God is for us, who is against us? Well, let me finish it with this. When God is for you, he's for you forever. That's what I've just been talking about. He's for you forever. I was reading a book years ago on, called Communion with God by the most famous of the Puritan theologians, a man named John Owen. And I was reading along in this famous book. I was on page 13. Thus far, nothing had really grabbed me dramatically. And I read one sentence on page 13, and it's as though God flipped the switch. I mean, flipping a switch and tears began to flow. Here's that sentence. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father. The greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. The most hurtful thing you could ever do to God is not to curse him, not to turn your back on him. The greatest hurt you could ever do to the heart of God is not to believe that he loves you. You don't believe he loves you? When you don't know how to pray, you don't know what to pray, and he gives the Holy Spirit who prays for you, always praying the will of God for you, it's always answered, and you wonder if he loves you. He takes everything that ever happens to you, even the very worst things that ever happens to you, and, and doesn't just neutralize them so that the pain is forgotten someday. He takes the worst things that ever happened and blesses you through them beyond your imagination forever and ever. And when you were before the foundation of the world, before you'd been born, he knew everything about you. He knew sins Every sin you would ever commit. He knew sins you haven't yet committed. He knew sins you would commit that you're not going to commit, but sins you would commit if you'd had the chance. I mean, sometimes I feel like, an, uh, you know, the, like Paul, the chief of sinners. Paul knows, though, even God knows worse than that. He knows how much worse I would have been if I'd been under someone else's circumstances and temptations and pressures. He knows I would have been a worse sinner than I am. 
But knowing that, he loved you anyway and predestined you to be not like angels, but like Jesus. I mean, if, if we knew we we're going to be beings as glorious as angels, we would have rejoiced forever, right? Twice in the book of Revelation, the apostle John falls down and worship angels. Now, don't you think the apostle John had a pretty good theology? Especially by the time of the book of Revelation. He knew better than to worship an angel. But when one appeared to him, even in just a 15-watt bulb version of his glory, he fell down and worshiped him. And they said, don't do that. Worship God. And I'm sure as the old man got up, he said, I, I know, I know, I'm sorry. I just couldn't help it. You were too glorious. If we knew we would be beings that glorious, we would have rejoiced forever. But folks, it's better than that. Those in Christ have been predestined to be like Christ. And when you were a stranger to this, you were running from this, you were an enemy to all this, he called you with a call that awakens the dead. Though he didn't need you, but he called you and gave you credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus. And in his mind, he's already glorified you. It's done. You're going to be like Christ forever and ever. And you wonder if he loves you? What greater proof could he give you? Would winning the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes be greater proof than all of these? So the question obviously is, is God for you? Is God for you? If you don't know, I can assure you he is for all who will come to Christ. And if almost with trembling voice you say with humility, I, I, I do believe God is for me. Based upon what the Bible says, I do believe God is for me. My brother, sister, then rejoice in that. Take all the spiritual pleasure from that that you can. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. If you've not come to Christ, my friend, realize that God stands against you this day. You have made yourself his enemy. And you may look around and say, well, you know what? I'm doing pretty well compared to most people in this room. I wouldn't trade places with very many of them, if any at all. Thank you very much. Your life may appear to be going well now, but the day will come when you will stand before him and you will realize to your terror what it means for God to be against you because you've rejected his son. And if God is against you, who can be for you? But in the name of Jesus, I can say today that if you will come to Christ, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of how many times you have done it, he will receive you. And I can stand in his place and say, come, welcome to Jesus Christ. Or you may be one here today. You've been in church. 
You've been in this building virtually every Sunday of your life. But if the truth were known, if your life were exposed, it'd be the biggest scandal in Dothan, Alabama. You'll receive hypocrites, too. He'll receive you, too. He will receive all who come to him. And if you will come to him, regardless of whether you ever get the job you want, or the spouse you want, or the kids you want, or the house you want, or anything else you want, come to Christ, and you get God. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the church. Thank you for all your good gifts to us, oh Lord. You are so good. And I pray that there will be people in this room today who would see your goodness and beauty as they've never seen it before. Cause them by your beauty and glory to want to run to Christ, to wrap their arms around him. Say, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. Please receive me, not because I deserve it. I know I don't. But I know Jesus deserves to be received by you, Lord, and I come in his name. All this we pray in his name and for your glory. Amen.